the most difficult thing to do as a defense lawyer is to have to tell somebody who very well might be innocent, who very well might prevail at trial, that the, that the, that the penalty that they will suffer if they don't prevail is so dramatically increased that they need to think about it in terms of the welfare of their family, their children, their parents, their spouses. And that is a really terrible, terrible emotional toll uh, for defense lawyers. And it really is a fundamental injustice. Welcome to Wardier. Conversations from the Criminal Justice Policy Program at Harvard Law School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and today we're going to talk about the trial penalty. Basically what that is, is when you decide to exercise your right to go to trial, you are punished at sentencing relative to what you would have gotten had you pled before trial. So we're going to ground this conversation in a recent report that the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers just put out called the trial penalty. We're going to discuss it with Norman Reamer, who's the executive director of the NACDL, and Elisa Klein, who's an associate at Skadden, whose pro bono attorneys contributed to the report. So here's our conversation. So I think the sort of shocking headline statistic from the report that you all put out is that I think it's 97% of state and federal cases end in a plea bargain. So I wonder if you could put some meat on the bones of that statistic and paint a picture of what plea bargaining looks like today? Well, I'll just start off by saying that essentially, uh, and the Supreme Court has sort of, has recently recognized this in some decisions, essentially our entire criminal justice system is a plea system. Trials are uh, a rarity. Uh, and even though the, the, the overall statistic is generally agreed to be about 97% of cases that are resolved without any kind of a trial, uh, we know that there are many jurisdictions in which there are virtually no trials ever. So um, it really has taken the exception and made that exception the rule. And can you give us um, an example of what the difference between, let's say, a case ending in a plea bargain versus going to trial? Like, what does that mean when the rubber hits the road for a defendant? All right. So, you know, to put this in context, the, the real problem here uh, is, is that um, the differential between what a person faces if they, take a, a, if they plead guilty and what they will get if they go to trial and assert what is basically, not basically, what is a fundamental constitutional right um, set forth in the Sixth Amendment, which is um, the right to have, it, to be, um, in, that in all prosecutions an accused shall uh, have the right to a trial by an impartial jury. Uh, the, the real problem is that uh, there are so many costs uh, that are extracted from an individual in order to get the benefit of, of a reduced sentence. Uh, so um, what we're concerned about is not uh, the fact that there is some increase in penalty for those who go to trial, but rather that it is often geometrically increased and so geometrically increased uh, that people are induced to give up uh, not only their right to have a jury determine whether, in fact, they're guilty or not, uh, but they're also oftentimes forced to give up other fundamental rights, such as the right to discovery, the right to conduct investigation, 
the right to challenge unlawfully obtained evidence, um, the right to appeal. Uh, all of these things are extracted from someone as the price they must pay in order to get a sentence, which may be a fraction of what they will get if they assert those fundamental rights. And when you say a fraction, like, can you give an example of, you know, a specific crime and what, what it might look like you know, if you if you plea out versus you go to trial, um, there is a section of the report where we um, essentially have measured what the differential between sentences post trial versus as the result of a, a guilty plea are for um, different types of crimes. Um, the Sentencing Commission categorizes crimes into various um, categories, and they also publish data files from every case that is sentenced in the federal system. And so we went and looked at those data files and could then measure the discrepancy between post-trial sentences and sentences following a guilty plea for each category. And, you know, based on our results, um, you can see that the discrepancy is very significant in, in a lot of instances. Um, for example, you know, it, it, we looked at data in 2015. There were over 7,000 cases um, where fraud was the primary offense that was charged. And the average sentence for a defendant who pled guilty to fraud was 1.9 years. But defendants who chose to take their cases to trial, the average sentence is six years, which is three times the amount of the, the penalty um, for those who pled guilty. When you look at, you know, burglary and breaking and entering cases, for instance, the average post-trial sentence is almost eight times higher than the average sentence after a guilty plea. That's okay. That's helpful. That's a helpful just sort of picture to, for for me to have in my mind. So before we get into the ramifications of this system, I was wondering, Norman, if you could just talk a little bit about, um, as a defense attorney, the... I'm assuming you didn't go into this line of work to be a master plea negotiator. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about the sort of realities of being a defense attorney and, and, and what that was like sort of emotionally. Yeah, well, I think the, the worst part about this system is that uh, you are required ethically uh, in in providing effective representation to a client to lay out the options for them. And for me, the most difficult thing to do as a defense lawyer is to have to tell somebody who very well might be innocent, who very well might prevail at trial, that the that the that the penalty that they will suffer if they don't prevail is so dramatically increased that they need to think about it in terms of the welfare of their family, their children, their parents, their spouses. And that is a really terrible, terrible emotional toll uh, for defense lawyers. And it really is a fundamental injustice. I mean, you really wind up, it really becomes a mathematical co uh, calculation where you, you end up saying to yourself, well, you may have a 20% chance of losing but if you lose, you're going to get eight times the sentence, for example, in, uh, in the example that um, 
that Elisa was talking about with, with breaking and entering. And, and embezzlement is also eight times. And food and drug offenses, the stats were showing the sentence would be ten times as great. So that is a really horrible thing. And it's a horrible thing for the system of justice because oftentimes whether or not somebody has in fact committed a crime is not a black and white determination. And it is appropriate that the community through a jury be the one to make that decision. And for the simple act of, of uh, asserting that right, people should not suffer um, geometrically increased penalties. So that leads me very nicely into um, my next question, which is for each of you, which is I want to take sort of one by one all the different ramifications of this system, but I'm wondering if there's something that really sticks out to both of you um, or to each of you as you know, the the most problematic thing about this state of affairs or the thing that that upsets you the most. I'm going to let Elisa go first, and then I'll jump in with a couple of uh, examples of what upsets me. Well, I, I should say that from my background, which is not as a criminal defense lawyer, so I come looking at this problem as actually a concerned citizen. Um, I think the most disturbing thing about it to me is that, you know, there is this impression, I think, in the public consciousness that we have this fantastic system of criminal justice that, you know, you have all of these great rights to, you know, require the the court, I mean, the, the government to well, prove your um, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, et cetera, and that we sort of take a lot of pride in that. And then you realize that in reality, that's almost never the case, that that's actually occurring. And that, you know, in, in fact, people are being coerced into giving up something that, that we, you know, hold to be such such a valuable right, um, simply because the system can't afford to, to try more cases, right? The reason that, that this has come about and the reason why it's justified is that we can't afford more trials. But you know, we're saying we can't, we just can't afford to uphold, like, the values of our Constitution. I think to me that that's probably the most disturbing thing about it. Can you speak a little bit more about that um, idea that we can't afford uh, to, you know, we can't afford more trials? I think that might be surprising to some people. Sure. I mean, I think when you look back at the history of plea bargaining and especially the Supreme Court's um, you know, commentary and opinion on plea bargaining, not that long ago, you know, in the 20th century, the, the court was very suspicious of the practice and, you know, was not readily willing to accept a, you know, guilty plea when they knew that it had been induced by a prosecutor offering a significantly lower sentence to the defendant. And there was a very stark change in the Supreme Court's view of that in you know the 1960s, 1970s. Um, and the court itself expresses the opinion that you know we are going, we need to accept that plea bargaining is you know the way the criminal justice system needs to move because it is just inefficient to try every case. And you know that that 
recognition moved from, okay, now we're going to accept plea bargaining in, you know, certain instances to now that's the rule. Every case is is pled out. Um, And it, it also creates an attitude among prosecutors and judges that defendants who do choose to go to trial are then imposing on the government. You know, they're imposing this great expense of a trial on the government, and so they deserve a harsher penalty because of that. Great. So I think that that is um, possibly that that point about efficiency might be a nice contrast form into what I think some of the things you might touch on. So what are some of the things that you find the most troubling about this state of affairs? Well, for one thing, and this is an irrefutable fact, which we all have to come to grips with, uh, we now know there is something called the National Registry of Exonerations, and we now know that of of 2,000, more than 2,000 documented exonerations, over 400 individuals uh, who were ultimately exonerated pled guilty. So we know for a fact that 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 innocent people are pleading guilty and that's a profoundly disturbing fact uh we also know that the percentage of cases in which it's even remotely possible to have an exoneration uh are a very very slender uh piece of the overall criminal justice pie um you know you're not going to have uh biological evidence for example in most cases you're certainly never going to have it in a case where the only question is one of intent uh so um the the fact that we ha- we are we are living with a system in which it's empirically demonstrated that innocent people are being induced to plead guilty is a real problem i myself think that uh, for those who are familiar with the process that goes on in a court, uh, when somebody pleads guilty, there is something called a plea allocution in which the individual is generally questioned by the court. And the key question that the court uh, seeks to determine is whether or not anyone has threatened or coerced the individual into pleading guilty. And if the individual says, yes, I've I've been coerced, then the plea is not accepted. I maintain that the answer that's given in most of those situations um, is uh, is one of the great scams in the criminal justice system. Of course, the person is being uh, coerced into pleading guilty. They're being told by their lawyer, as the lawyer must, that if they dare to um, challenge the government, they're going to face greater consequences. The other thing that I think is really problematic about all of this is that, um, and by the way, this is pervasive with misdemeanors as well as with felonies, is that they layer on all of these different waivers of rights. So, you know, even uh, on some low-level misdemeanors, people are told, if you don't take this plea offer at your first appearance, we're going to set bail, a bail you may not be able to make. And so we're inducing people in misdemeanor cases uh, to plead guilty right from the beginning. And then even as the process moves forward, um, if somebody has uh, uh, potentially been the victim of an unlawful search and seizure uh, or an, uh, an improper identification procedure, uh, and they have a constitutional right to challenge that in a motion, you will have prosecutors saying, well, uh, we'll give you X offer if you waive your right to challenge uh, this police behavior. So you have an insulation of, uh, of, of questionable law enforcement behavior as a result of this process. One of the things that I think 
is most useful in the report is we give uh, a number of examples which we were able to acquire through our members and others uh, who have experienced this uh, with their clients. And you can see examples in just about every kind of case, um, uh, whether it's a white-collar case, a corporate case, or, you know, a sort of a street uh, crime uh, type of case. You know, we've got one in, in situation in there where a lower-level uh, accounting official um, uh, was involved in, in criminality, uh, but the higher-level individual, the, the CFO, um, uh, went and cooperated uh, before he did. And as a result, and this is another phenomenon which is tremendously disturbing in the system, the, the, the more serious offender who cooperates earlier uh, gets a better sentence. In this case, the CFO who cooperated got a five-year sentence. Uh, the lesser individual uh, who went to trial, first of all, he tried to cooperate. They wouldn't accept it because the other one had already cooperated, and he couldn't give new information. Uh, and he ended up getting a 20-year sentence at the age of 70 years old. Uh, the other thing that we've been able to show is that when cases are actually going to trial, it exposes government overreaching. So one of the great examples in the report is is the case of, of, of FedEx and UPS. Um, back in uh, 2013, the government uh, accused both of these common characters uh, carriers alleged, uh, allegedly of distributing controlled substances um, by delivering packages that were uh, that contained pharmaceuticals from internet pharmacies. Um, uh, now they were common carriers. Their position was they had no awareness of what was being shipped. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that UPS, um, uh, rather than risk uh, a, a a trial and whatever impact that could have on their share prices and everything, they entered into a non-prosecution agreement and paid a $40 million fine. FedEx said, nothing doing. We're not going to capitulate. And they risked uh, everything, basically, and went to trial. The government was seeking not $40 million from them, but for taking the case to trial, the government was seeking $1.6 billion. 40 times what they got from UPS. Well, as it turns out, by the time the case went to trial and right after opening statements, the case completely collapsed and the government actually declared that FedEx was factually innocent of the charges. Um, they had been uh, in, at all times cooperative with the government and had basically told the government, uh, if you tell us who not to deliver from, we won't deliver from them. So there's a rare situation where a company with the resources and the will to take a case to trial expose the fact that the government was overreaching. And that is a, a pervasive, that's a, a wonderful example of what happens if, you, if a case does go to trial, but that's one of the things that we're losing by not having uh, cases going to trial, is prosecutors are not challenging their own evidence. They're not questioning whether or not they should be going forward because they have so much leverage that they almost always can get some kind of a guilty plea um, when perhaps they shouldn't have even been bringing the case in the, in the first instance. So uh, you've talked a, you just talked a little bit about government over, overreach, but, but before that you also mentioned um, insulating prob you know, problematic police behavior from 
exposure to the public. Can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the, the issues around transparency when things don't go to trial? Sure. I mean, what, 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 no one really knows what the facts of the case are. No one knows what the witnesses had to say. No one knows what the circumstances were that led to the arrest. Uh, and, it there, and, there, and thereby, in a sense, uh, promotes um, uh, a, a complete lack of transparency. Uh, and so let me, be, let, me give this, let me put this in more concrete terms. Uh, supposing you have a, um, a, you know, a policing practice which is relying on profiling of individuals, uh, which is uh, constitutionally impermissible, uh, promotes disparity, uh, racial and ethnic disparity in the criminal justice system. But if you routinely arrest people uh, and then... Uh, by inducing them to give up their right to challenge this behavior in a court proceeding, um, you get them to plead guilty under threat of, of, a, of a vastly greater penalty, you will never s- expose that behavior. And that is a real concern. Is there, um, you also mentioned uh, discovery. And I, I would love if you could flesh out a little bit around um, what, w- at what point in the process people are making this decision and what information they have in front of them. So that's a really great question, and that is, that is part of the problem. So um, uh, it, to the extent that the government is offering an inducement um, early in the process and conditioning that offer upon a waiver of any right uh, to conduct further uh, investigation or to get the the discovery, which is, you know, to have the reports that the law enforcement is relying upon turned over, um, they are, again, uh, people forcing people to act in the dark. Those things should never be, uh, uh, you should never be um, put in a position where in order to take advantage of the right to make an intelligent decision, uh, you have to risk a greater penalty simply for doing that. Now, the extent to which this becomes a factor varies greatly throughout the country, depending upon what the discovery practices are in various states. If you're in certain states, uh, I myself practiced in New York, where we, where the discovery laws are, are, are not very good. You mostly don't get police reports until you go to trial. But if you're given a plea offer and told you have to take it by a certain date, or it will be withdrawn, you're forced to decide between finding out what the real strength of the government's case is, um, uh, uh, or, uh, on the other hand, um, giving that up uh, in order to get the benefit of a lesser, uh, a lesser sentence. I was just going to say, are there other sort of, I mean, getting exculpatory, ex, ex, sorry, getting exculpatory material is a constitutional right, right? Are there other sort of fundamental rights that people are giving up because of this sort of pressure to plead? Yeah, uh, the right to uh, the right to not just exculpatory evidence, but discovery in general to find out uh, what what the witnesses saw, what's contained in the police reports. Um, they're giving up, it, it, again, depending upon the timing of the plea offer and when it's withdrawn if you don't take it, they're giving up the right to thoroughly investigate the case, to develop defenses, to develop mitigation. Um, as I mentioned uh, previously, the right to challenge unlawfully seized evidence. Um, 
Oftentimes, the plea requires a waiver of an appeal. We have even heard of situations where people have been asked to waive their future right to make a FOIA request uh, to find out what was contained in police reports. So there's a whole lot that's involved, and as I mentioned uh, in the lower court situation, you may be very you may be put in the position of having to trade the guilty plea for your very freedom. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like what you're describing is a system in which it's a system that looks completely different from what you see on Law and Order, or or the way that the justice system, um, is, you know in most people's minds, is supposed to work, right? We're going to gather evidence. We're going to go to trial. We're going to figure out what happened here. I wonder, and this is a question for both of you, um, if there were no disparity in what people got and what people get before, you know, when they plead versus after trial, would you still think plea bargaining is a problem? Well, let me, you know, I I think each of us may have a different perspective on this. So let me be clear, at least from the standpoint of my organization. We're not saying that there should be no disparity. We're not saying uh, that um, the government uh, uh, should be in a position where uh, there's no differential whatsoever uh, for someone who insists on taking a case to trial. but when that differential... And why is that? Sorry, just before we... Because I, I feel like because we're about I to go to a lot of different interesting areas, so I just want to make sure I drill down on that first. I think that there, I think that there is a common agreement that, that someone who, against whom there is overwhelming evidence um, uh, uh, is willing to accept responsibility uh, and save the government from the expense of going to trial, I think that there should be some benefit for that. Um, but when the when it becomes uh, a, a, a such a, a vast differential as it has become, and when it involve when it lay, and when it layers on also the waiver of all other or whole manner of other fundamental rights, that's when it becomes abusive and when the system has been turned on its head. I mean, I think you know uh, many of us would feel that if twenty percent. 25% of cases went to trial. That would have a tremendous salutary effect. I also want to comment just very briefly on this idea that the system depends upon pleas. I think part of the problem is that we have flooded our criminal justice system with criminal prosecutions that focus on all manner of personal, social, and economic regulation, rather than focusing on what is commonly considered to be, you know, basic fundamental crime, like hurting people, stealing from people, things like that. So we have flooded our system with a whole lot of things that probably don't belong in a criminal justice system, and that's why the system has to accommodate that has to turn has become a, a plea system. Uh, so I think you know there are many fundamental social questions that have to be addressed if we're going to get out of this mess. Um, but the fundamental point you asked is, should there be no distinction at all? No, we're not, no one is arguing that there should never be any distinction, um, but that it should, be, uh, it should be measured and it should not be abusive. Okay. Alisa, and I will I tell you, give... 
I just want to say one other thing you might find interesting. This just happened within the last two weeks. I was informed of, 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 a, of and I think this is happening pretty pervasively around the country, but literally uh, in a case uh, in, in, which is in the Southern District, a multiple defendant case, in a filing submitted by the government uh, uh, in which they were asked by the court to indicate its readiness for trial on a particular date, they put in a letter, and the last sentence of which was, however, we reserve the right to return to the grand jury to seek additional charges against any defendant who proceeds to trial. Yikes. <laughs> this is a black and white, this is a letter yeah. in a public filing. Um, that's what we're talking about. That's, that is the trial penalty in, in its classic fashion. Elisa, do you want to... Um do you want to be heard or take a stab at if there were no disparities, would you be okay with the system of plea bargaining? Sure. I mean, I think I could point out what, um, you know, echoes some of what Norman said is that, you know, just the, the practical acknowledgement that without any disparity in sentencing, we would probably be stuck with a system where nobody pleads guilty because there is no incentive to do so um, or not nobody, but it would probably be the reverse of, you know, something like 3% of people pleading guilty versus, you know, 97%. Um, and so I, I think that that is simply a practical reality that you have to acknowledge. But, you know, as Norman mentioned, there's a difference between offering someone a benefit for pleading guilty and, you know, accepting responsibility for their crimes and, and, you know, bludgeoning a defendant with an outrageous sentence if they choose to exercise their right to go to a trial. And that can be seen in, I mean, that, that, that distinction between those two circumstances can be seen in the way it, in the federal system that sentences are calculated um, you know, a good example is, you know, the, the the sentencing guideline that applies to economic crimes. I mean, in many instances, you can come out of that calculation with a sentence that, you know, is well beyond the lifespan of an individual. And it makes absolutely no sense for that to be a possibility. Why would you ever need to sentence somebody to a 70-year sentence? Um, and... So it seems clear that, you know, these sentences are available to prosecutors for the purpose of using them to coerce people to plead guilty, as opposed to, you know, offering a modest benefit to somebody who chooses to plead guilty. So I, I um, not necessarily, I don't want to push back, but I want to sort of probe a little bit more around this, and then I want to talk about your recommendations. Um which are included in the report, but I want to make sure we flush them out. So is the, is the, the, it sounds like there's sort of a twofold reason for why plea bargaining um, should exist. First of all, that there should be some kind of recognition when people accept responsibility. And secondly, that there should be some benefit afforded to people who bear the government the you know, hullabaloo or expensive um, of going through trial. Am I characterizing that correctly? Yeah, I, w I would I would agree with that characterization. Uh, and I think, but of course, it should you know it also should be very case specific. In other words, what I mean by that is that 
um, there may be situations where individuals um, are putting the government to the test in in, in situations where um, it's you know in the when all of the evidence is viewed by the tri- by the by the judge, um, it it it's it's somewhat unreasonable. Then there may be other situations in which, well, actually it was a pretty it was a toss up. It could have gone either way. Um, you know, a jury deliberated for a long time and came to a particular conclusion, but they could have come to another conclusion. I don't think it should ever be a cookie cutter. Um, I think, and that's, you know, that does get into one of our recommendations, that there may be circumstances in which an individual, even after they have gone to trial, should get the benefit of accepting responsibility. If they are genuinely uh, remorseful, but simply felt that they wanted to have a jury determine whether or not, in fact, they were guilty. Yeah, I guess that was going to be my my next question was just around. I could imagine people's um, response to that being, well, well, people can accept responsibility after they've been just after the government has been put to their case, right? Um, so there's still there still should be a place for people to to show remorse at the sen- at the post trial sentence. Right, but under the current system, though, without our recommendations, and in virtually all the states, that doesn't exist. That is that is not that doesn't exist, um, and I would love to give you a, a wonderful example of a of a situation uh, which I think you know is, is the one of the finest examples I've seen. We are right now we have a a state clemency project, which uh, actually uh, Lisa's firm has has some number of lawyers are volunteering to work with us, and we're working in New York in response to a governor's initiative. Uh, to consider reducing the sentences of certain individuals who've been in prison for a long time. I recently was uh, in my capacity as a reviewing attorney. I reviewed a case of an individual who was either 18 or 19 at the time uh, that he got into an altercation at 2 o'clock in the morning with a 40-some-odd-year-old man who was his mother's uh, boyfriend and had been abusive to the mother. A struggle broke out. There was a struggle over a gun, and the young man um, shot the individual and killed him. He voluntarily surrendered the next day. He had no prior history at all, no prior criminal history. And he was allowed to be uh, at at liberty uh, during the pendency of the case, which didn't go to trial for two years. Um, He went to trial. He asserted a self-defense claim. Uh, that the individual was drunk and out of control and there was a struggle and so on and so forth. And after an extensive deliberation, the jury rejected the claim. He was sentenced to 25 years to life. This was about 18 years ago. He has had no violations whatsoever since he's been in a maximum prison, maximum uh, 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 level uh, penitentiary. Wow. In working... In working up the case, the lawyer who's uh, preparing this clemency petition found in the pleadings that the prosecutor had offered him three to nine years. So here's an individual, right, with a close case. Okay, maybe he was right to be convicted, but they felt that for punishment, for protection of the public, for deterrence, the appropriate sentence was three to nine years. He's now serving 
at least eight times that, and maybe he'll serve the rest of his life in prison. That is the trial penalty, and that is, besides everything else that you can say about how bad this is for the justice system, that's a fundamental injustice, in my opinion. Yes, I think that's a fair assessment. Uh, That's a terrible... um situation. But those kinds of things, those kinds of things happen fairly regularly. And that's the, that is part of the problem. The, the, the weaker the case, uh, the, the, the more likely somebody might be acquitted, the better the offer that prosecutors are allowed to put out there. And then at the back end of it, if they, if they win, there's virtually no relief for the individual. That's a really interesting point. It, it, It seems there's a bit of a perversion or a paradox there that, the weaker the case, the more likely someone is to plead and get a more lenient sentence. Whereas the more likely that someone has a strong case for trial or a strong case for innocence, the more likely to be punished. That is exactly what what the system has turned into. Um, so I do want to spend some time talking about how to how to fix this situation. Um, because I'm, I'm hearing from you that it's not scrapping plea bargaining altogether, although I'm sure there are some folks that might feel that way. So how do right. we, um, how do we reduce the harm of this system? And I, I know your report has a number of recommendations. So again, maybe, uh, one way to do this would be to have, um, each of you just describe some of the ones that you think are the most important or the, have the most capacity for transforming this system. I, I do think that certainly one of one of the things that um, is probably not even controversial to talk about that needs to be reformed is you know this idea of mandatory minimum sentencing that there are statutes in place that um, a prosecutor can make use of to force a judge to impose a, a mandatory minimum sentence the judge cannot depart from it. Um, you know, there are two specific examples that we highlight in the report. Um, one is where a firearm is um, involved in a crime, and another is where the, the defendant has been convicted of um, two prior what violent felonies, as that's defined underneath the statute. Um, and in you those may be going. Sure, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, you, you may be going here, but can you just describe what the mechanism is by which mandatory minimums play into a plea bargaining context? Sure, sure. Like, how, so, you know, how do prosecutors use mandatory minimums? I, I can give you an example. Um, there's a Great. section of, you know, the there's, there's a sentencing statute called Section 924C that applies when a gun is being not necessarily used, but it's involved in a crime. And how that works in the plea bargaining context is, you know, there's um, some evidence or in certain cases, you know, not great evidence, but some suggestion that a firearm was involved in the crime. And um, when charges are filed, either the prosecutor will um, charge you know, with the, you know, with the, um, add the the 924C charge um, into the indictment, or they'll go to the defendant, the accused, and threaten to add the charge to the indictment unless they plead guilty. And this occurs very frequently. Um, And so, 
how that plays out is because charging the 924C automatically comes with a mandatory minimum sentence, the defendant then knows that there is no getting out of this. If I am found guilty of, you know, this, um, this, this charge, I will, I definitely will be facing a sentence of an additional five years that's stacked onto the charge for the underlying crime. And then if there is a, um, second firearms offense, then it's an additional 25 years. So automatically applies. You can't appeal to the judge for leniency from that. And that is based solely on the prosecutor's decision about whether or not to include that charge in the indictment. So it provides them with enormous leverage to force defendants to plead guilty. Great. So your your top recommendation would be to take mandatory minimums out of the statute so that prosecutors can't use them to as leverage, basically. Either to repeal them or to include some mechanism where a judge is able to, you know, in certain instances, depart from that so that it's not simply the prosecutor who is making the decision about whether or not this should apply. Great. Okay, Norman, do you have um, any recommendations? Well, that you well have I, for... uh, yes, I'm a, well, first of all, I want to endorse that. I think that mandatory minimums in general are um, uh, horribly abusive um, and, uh, and a, great, a great source of this problem, both on the federal level and the state level. Some of the recommendations that, you know, our recommendations at this point are, are, we're foc- are focused on the federal system. We are hoping to work uh, with other groups, including many of NACDL's affiliates around the country, to produce similar reports that focus on each state, because the, the, the contributing factors uh, vary from state to state. Uh, for example, in some cases, it's judicial lack of involvement in plea bargaining uh, that lends, lends itself to abuse. But there are some states where it's judicial involvement in plea bargaining, where judges themselves will tell uh, individuals, if you don't take a plea, I will give you an extremely harsh sentence. So with that as the backdrop, let me just talk about a couple of the, the uh, modifications that we suggest for the federal system. And some of them really relate. Some of them are sort of paired together. So, for example, um, we we are recommending um, that courts courts should be authorized to provide acceptance of responsibility um, uh, even after a trial and without a motion by the government, if under the particular circumstances of a case, and uh, they 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 are persuaded that a, a def, that an accused person, a convicted person in this case. Um, uh, re- accepts responsibility, even though they took advantage of their constitutional right to a trial. And very closely analogous to this is that under, under the federal system, almost uniformly, if a uh, an accused person either testifies um, to a version of the facts in a motion to suppress or testifies in their own defense at trial, the government almost always seeks and usually gets enhancements for obstruction of justice. So we're recommending that unless there's some external act of obstruction, you know, like bribing a witness or threatening a witness, simply for asserting one's innocence or simply for giving their version of what happened when they were stopped in search, they shouldn't be subjected to those enhancements. 
So those two are really uh, paired together. The other... Um, uh, the, Sorry, can the, I just... I want to make yeah. sure I understand that one correctly. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you, I mean, it's just sort of a little bit, I guess, confusing. You can be, um, you can have an enhancement for obstructing justice for, you know, demanding that the government prove that you're that you've done something. That's if you if you if you if you testify, um, the government under the particular provision of the sentencing guidelines will always ask for and usually get and under the guidelines a a, a two point enhancement for obstruction of justice on the theory being that you attempted to mislead the jury simply uh, for assert, simply for asserting your innocence or saying i didn't you know i didn't intend to do this i didn't believe what i did was a crime that will lead to an obstruction um, and that's again that's that's another part you if you couple the lack of acceptance of responsibility with the potential for obstruction you're now talking about a potential 4 to 7 point swing under the federal sentencing guidelines which can be a lot of time right and, for for, for and, basically going to trial and presenting a defense exactly exactly don't you have a um, constitutional right to present a defense like I mean, that's a, I, that's just surprising. Yeah, sort of unfortunately, shock. unfortunately, you don't have a constitutional right not to be punished more severely for presenting defense. That's <laughs> yeah. part of the problem. Apparently, and another concept that we that we're introducing, which I think would be transformational, is uh, what we call a judicial second look, which is that after a period of after a, a substantial service of a sentence, uh, give courts the power um, to re- to review. Uh, the sentence and make sure that it's a proportionate and appropriate over time. So that's so that's different you know, than like parole or something. This is an actual look at your sentence, not your. That would give exactly. That would give the judge the opportunity to look at that. Now, whether they be entitled to look at behavior in prison, I, I would. You know, that's something to be. We didn't flesh out the detail of that, but I, I, I would. You know, I wouldn't be terribly disturbed by that as well. I mean, obviously, um, if somebody has a history of violence while they've been incarcerated, that should be, you know, you're not going to expect a judge to overlook that. Um, But, you know, this whole idea of having greater flexibility and, you know, at one point in our history, it wouldn't have been necessary before we had mandatory minimums or before we handed out the kinds of sentences that we hand out. But we, our sentencing structure in this country is so severe, is so punitive that it becomes detached from any degree of human rationality. Yeah. So it sounds, it sounds like there are some, um, sort of more practical and tangible reforms recommended in the report that, that people can take a look at, but also questions around um, around what we punish and how much we punish. And that would, that would help. Well, I think, I think ultimately that is really where we have to go with all of this. I don't think you can tinker around the edges. I think you have to, you know, we have the highest prison population in the world, both per capita and actual numbers. And, you know, I don't think we're the most criminal nation in the world. So something is out of whack. So I think that's a good place to end, but I just want to give people a chance to check out the report if they um, want to sort of read further about this. So can you just describe where to find it? Uh, So the report can be found at www.nacdl.org forward slash trial penalty report. Great. And um, 
if people have sort of experiences of, of their own, or I'm sure there are defense attorneys out there listening to this who might have their own trial penalty stories, is there any kind of repository yeah. for that or any yeah, so let me let, there? Yeah, so what, what NACDL hopes to do in the coming months and perhaps years uh, is to try to highlight, is not only to pr- pursue reform on the federal level, but to highlight the problem on the state level uh, and, pr- and promote reform uh, throughout the states. Uh, to that end, we're hoping to work with lots of different groups to produce similar reports that focus on each state. Uh, and we are encouraging uh, anybody who has uh, information, uh, examples of the trial penalty to share those stories wherever they can so that we can uh, help uh, tell the story to the public uh, and get people to really understand that this is not just some theoretical legal problem. It's a fundamental defect in our nation's criminal justice system. Great. Well, thank you so much again, Elisa. It was great to hear from you. Um, thank you for, again for for all the work that you put into this. Um, it's a really sort of well researched and, and and thorough report. Sure. Happy to great. be of help. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. That's it for this episode. By now, I feel like you should know the drill. We would really love it if you would rate us and review us on whatever platform you got this podcast on. In the meantime, thanks to the people at the Criminal Justice Policy Program, namely Brooke Hopkins and Anna White, and thanks to the people at Pottington Bear for composing our theme music. Till next time, take care and do justice.